Greetings, and welcome to Montessori in Action, a podcast for Montessori educators to remind you that you are not alone. I'm your host, Elizabeth Slade, and let's spend some time listening to what is in the hearts and on the minds of other Montessorians. Welcome to Season 3 of Montessori in Action podcast. Last season, we launched with an episode about summer reads, Montessori-related books to explore. Our premiere episode for this season will do the same as we discuss the future of SMART, how our education system needs to change to help all young people thrive. The author, Dr. Olka Joshi Hansen, shares her inspiration for the book and how Montessori schools play a role in changing our education system so all children flourish. Dr. Hansen is Chief Program Officer at Grantmakers for Education. She is a first-generation American who began school as an English language learner and was the first in her family to complete college. Her experiences have fueled her desire to interrogate and advocate for an expanded vision of what it means to ensure every child has access to high-quality education in America. She began her career as an elementary school teacher in New York, New Jersey, and over the last 20 years, she has worked with educators, students, communities, business and civic leaders to support developmentally aligned, human-centered learning experiences that unlock the unique potential of learners. Welcome, Dr. Hansen, to Montessori in Action podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. So we're here to talk about the future of SMART today. I'm really excited, having just finished it, and wondering if you'd share what led you to write this book. I had been thinking about writing this book since 2008 um, because a lot of the work that I had done up until that point had taken me from a public education kind of system and being in a public education classroom that was more traditional into exploring things like Montessori and more human-centered liberatory models. And I felt like there was something so important about the kind of philosophical underpinnings of these human-centered approaches that needed to be part of the broader conversation in public education reform and wasn't. And, you know, as often happens, I won't, I won't share the ups and downs, but I mean, I tried to sell this book to publishers. We did three or four rounds, my agent and I, and I kept hearing, what do you mean you want to write a book that explores education from the 1500s to now? That's huge. And no one wants to read that. And they just want you to tell them how to do education. And um, I finally, during COVID, for a lot of reasons, found myself with this time and space and with everything going on with George Floyd and the racial reckoning and people talking about the inequitable systems, it felt like a really important moment to locate this conversation about education in this broader set of conversations we are having in this country and globally about the values that we want to drive and shape our systems, education and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for our listeners, will you share the Montessori connection? Because Montessori is throughout the book, which was delightful as a reader. Um, but do you want to just let them know, how, how do you connect with Montessori? I was first introduced to Montessori because I had a friend in college who had gone to Lake Country Day School in Minneapolis. And I just remember him talking about his education and thinking, wow, how amazing. And then I started teaching in the public schools in New Jersey in the late 90s. 
And they were asking me to do things to young people that I just didn't think we should be doing to young human beings. And so I went to work for a foundation, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and we funded lots of different kinds of schools. So we funded some of the first college prep charters, but we also funded Montessori, Waldorf, um, independent schools. And so it was through a site visit that I ended up um, at a Montessori school in Montclair, New Jersey. And I just, and I write about this in the, in the introduction to the, to the book, it felt so different. And I, my editor was like, feel is such a squishy word. And I said, but it's the right word because it wasn't intellectual. It was, I walked in and there was something about this. And so I ended up doing my doctoral work, digging very deep into Montessori, Rudolf Steiner and Jiddu Krishnamurthy, who were three thinkers in Europe that were sort of the forerunners to this holistic human-centered educational movement. Um, But my, you know, Having studied it and researched it and worked with Montessorians, I definitely sent my own kids um, to a Montessori primary program. My older one switched um, after first grade because there were no public Montessori programs that we could access, and we were really committed to the public system. But I still feel like I see the the what they got even out of the three or four years that they had. Like that continues to be a core of who they are as learners and people. Mm-hmm. And so Montessori, along with Waldorf and Krishnamurti, say what are the what's the connection there between those three approaches? So you know, the first part of the book asks us to go back to the 1500s in Europe and to understand that actually what undergirds our current system of education is this understanding of the world that is very different than the way that human beings across cultures in the centuries and millennia before that period had understood themselves to be connected to each other and to the world. So that existing worldview I call holistic indigenous. And the worldview that was birthed around the scientific revolution is a Cartesian Newtonian worldview that tries to break the world apart, fragment it, understand it, manipulate it. And when we talk about the factory model of education, we are actually pointing at the values of a Cartesian-Newtonian worldview. And so those values undergirded this kind of project of mass education that started in Europe and came to the U.S. And Montessori, Steiner, and Krishnamurti were sort of at the tail end of a group of thinkers that started with the Romantics, like Froebel and Pestalozzi, who were all saying, like, children are human beings, and they unfold, and they have this potential. But Montessori, Steiner, and Krishnamurti actually took that theory and built programs because they they worked with young people and they sort of embodied right what it meant to take these theoretical principles of the romantics and and make them real. And they did it at a moment when there were world wars, there was death, there was misery, and as everyone on you know who's listening to this knows, Montessori writes a lot about that, that we are going to create the world and build a world based on the young people we produce and their education. And so for all three of them, education was a means to helping liberate young people from the constraints of the existing kind of set of values to be able to build a, a world anew. And the fact that they did that at the time period that they did in the late 1800s and early 1900s is, is significant because it's not unlike the moment we find ourselves in now, right? Where, where, we, where we once again are having to confront the question of we're seeing the world being undermined and harmed 
by the sort of Cartesian Newtonian values run amok. And so we have a choice to make about how we educate our children. I love the part where you point out that the pandemic gave an opportunity to pause the insanity of like ongoing assessments and just the the ways in which education kind of fell apart in the year of virtual. Um, we couldn't rely on some of those ways and some of the the stronger, more holistic indigenous model schools were kind of able to carry on because they're built on relationships and those relationships could still be managed despite the fact that the the way in which children were learning had changed in the pandemic. Um, and yeah, I think that, that undergirds a lot of what you're talking about is this moment is an opportunity to say, yeah, so our data was already disrupted. How about we jump track? And, and I want to add its relationship and its agency, right? Because all of these models have also done the work where the adults have helped young people take on agency for their learning. And, and sort of it, the model is I'm by your side, I'm not driving it. And so I think that's the other important piece of it is relationship and agency. Well, that's so interesting because one of the biggest um, insights this year as schools returned to full in-person was the gap in independence for students that grew over the time. So, you know, I think a lot of traditional programs were looking at academic gaps, like things where forward motion was lost and Montessorians were noticing, wow, students you know, have lost this independence, this ability to engage that sort of autonomy and agency that you're talking about without a prepared environment to be exploring and growing those elements in, in the same way. Right. And both inside and outside of school, right? I mean, I think that's the other thing about the pandemic that gives us an opportunity. I think too many debates in education have been about finger pointing at one group or another group or another group. And the reality is that part of why our children lost their ability to be independent was because the world shut down. And so the natural kind of planes of development, the ways in which they would have been growing into their autonomy and their identity were just, you know, it, and, it, and that wasn't anyone's fault per se, right? It was the pandemic as a whole. And so we have this moment to where you were going a minute ago, to say, all right, a lot of the things that held us constrained, including, I think, parents' perception of their child's education, what parents are saying they want for their kids, what young people are saying they want, you know, given the time and space they had. We do have a, a moment where we can do this both and, which is, and that's a hallmark of a holistic indigenous worldview is a both and, as opposed to the either or that we often get into, um, which is a very scarcity mentality. But we can continue to make the current system work as well as it can for the young people who are in them, because the argument that you know they can't afford to wait is a very legitimate one. And at the same time, we can be thinking about what systems, what structures, what processes are needed to enable human-centered liberatory environments to spread generally, but spread very particularly in the public system. And I, you know, I say this now everywhere I go, is this is a moment for those of us who care about public education and think that public education is part of racial justice and equity. Um, there are a lot of forces that are using the pandemic as a moment to say, let's give parents choice, let's give them the money and let them go and do what they want. And that will undermine a public good 
that I think is at the foundation of our country. And so I think we all have to be very vigilant about that and continually put public education front and center um, of where and how we do this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm hoping to get to that part in the conversation and thinking about, particularly for public Montessorians who are living in sort of a bicultural um, way because they have this like, education based on human development that's positioned inside of a system that is coming from more of a factory model mindset. And so this is a moment really for public Montessorians to sort of leverage and maybe even lead um, in districts in a different direction. Um, but I, I want to I dial back a little bit um, because when you were talking earlier, it was connecting to um, a piece that you also write about, which is the two sides of the brain um, and how our education system serves them. And it's funny because while I was reading your book, a quotation I um, of Montessori's kept circling in my head where she says to teach um, details is to teach confusion, right? And the idea that these little nuggets of knowledge, which is, you know, sort of a left brain approach, is taking away the context of it, which is, you know, the Montessori value of whole to parts. First, we see the whole world map. That's where we start <laughs> before we dive into the continents, right? Whereas in a sort of traditional class, you might start with like your town, um, without the context for where in the world is my town? No, I think that, that's right. So the left-right brain, for those folks who, would, who are listening who may not have had a chance to read the book, so I want to say first that this is very different from the way in which left-brain, right-brain has been used in popular parlance, right, where people say, oh, I'm good at math, I must be left-brained, or I'm right-brained, I'm artistic, we know that both hemispheres of the brain are involved in everything we do, whether it's creative, analytic, verbal, um, numeracy. So it's not that. But a gentleman named Ian McGilchrist, who is a neuroscientist in the UK, kind of asked himself the legitimate question, why is the human brain separated into two hemispheres with the corpus callosum in the middle, which does two things? It inhibits one or the other side, or it's connecting them. And so his research has basically led him, and the book he wrote was um, The Master and His Emissary, or there's a smaller, shorter book called The Divided Brain, to basically say the two hemispheres of the brain do two different things in the form of paying attention to the world in different ways. Both are necessary, right? We would not survive as human beings if one or the other wasn't there. However, they need to be in the right relationship. So the right hemisphere is like the wide end of a funnel. We're embodied beings. We live in a context. We're surrounded by sensation and input. And so the right hemisphere is taking all of that in, large flows of information. It's the big picture, but it's not made sense of yet. And the left hemisphere is where all of that information is sent to make sense of it and to make it usable. Because if you had to sift through everything at every second, it wouldn't work. So the left brain kind of is very reductionist. It's very linear. It's very sequential. And importantly, it's sort of a closed loop system. At a certain point, if it doesn't have a place to put something, it kind of ignores it. And there's fascinating stories he, he gives about people with hemispheric lesions and damage. When the brain is working properly things then go from the left hemisphere back to the right to be understood in context. And so some people might call that wisdom, right? We might think of it as the big picture, but the left hemisphere should be in service to the right. 
And Ian's point in a lot of his work and his sociocultural analysis is that for many reasons over the last several hundred years, but in the last kind of hundred years in particular, our culture, our dominant culture has become very left hemispheric to the, to the point where we are literally getting trapped by a certain way of paying attention in the world that doesn't allow us to kind of live in healthy ways. And when you read the descriptions of what a world would look like that is left hemispheric dominant, it is actually scary how accurate it was um, or how accurate it is. So, you know, the book is uses that both as to help people sort of understand the learning process and, and we can come back to this, why it's so important in the earliest years to be doing learning that is right hemispheric, but it also uses this kind of left hemispheric way of being and right hemispheric way of being as sort of through lines in the book to kind of say a lot of what we're trying to do is develop muscles that are associated with a right hemispheric way of being. We are all very good at the left hemispheric way of being, right? Whether that's urgency or being myopic or losing the big picture or not taking time to rest. And we really need to intentionally cultivate those right hemispheric muscles. I have a curiosity about, so Montessori is a constructivist method um, and it's often held in juxtaposition to a behaviorist method, right? Which is, you know, much more in line with the way the many many schools exist, um, looking for punishments and rewards as ways to move learning along, as opposed to this idea of we're natural learners and we're self-constructing all the time. And just as you were talking, I was sort of mapping that onto what you're talking about as behaviorist is being, again, more preferring left dominant bits of information and constructivist, you know, leveraging more of the right brain where it's in a it's in a prepared environment for learning that that self-construction occurs. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's happening in a larger world with something to engage in that is prompting these thoughts. And I love the idea of it sending the information. I'm doing the binomial cube and I'm, I have the big picture, but I'm sending these bits of information over here that's helping me structure and organize it, that's sending it back so that when I'm in, al- in an algebra class later on, I'm I, because I had this sensorial experience of doing this. I understand that cubes are actually cubes. <laughs> like when you're putting the number three there, it actually means that you're working with a cube. And I just, I just think that's fascinating. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how constructivism and behaviorism relate to the conversation around the brain. So in the second part of the book, I try and sort of map these hemispheric tendencies into how schools kind of play out in the world today. And I divide schools into three buckets. And the first bucket I call conventional, which is really your modern day factory model. A lot of your college preparatory charter schools, you know, would have fallen in that bucket. The middle bucket is big um, and they look really different. What pulls them together is that they recognize the shortcomings of the conventional model, of which there are many, and it tries to bolt on programs or solutions. So bolt on an SEL curriculum or bolt on culturally responsive practice or bolt on projects, but they never actually design and redesign from a different set of values. And both of those two buckets emerge out of that Cartesian-Newtonian left hemispheric way of being. So when you think about behaviorism, right, in some ways it's, it's very much a sort of utilitarian thing, which is how are we most efficient in getting these outcomes? It isn't 
that efficient in the long term, but like, how do we think it's most efficient that human beings are just machines and can be programmed with the right stimuli? And human-centered liberatory programs, which use constructivist methodologies, project-based, play-based, um, inquiry-based, you know, situational learning, those are all very right hemispheric in their understanding of how learning happens. I will point out that does not mean that you don't sometimes use direct instruction or teacher-guided methods, right, because we follow the children. Um, and that's where I think a lot of these human-centered liberatory programs fall apart is because people get too rigid. They become very left hemispheric about, well, we're not going to do anything that speaks to like conventional. And so, but yes, I think the, co the connectivist idea really says, look, learning is emergent. Learning is contextualized. Learning is personal. And so all of those things about self, right, that are, t that are sort of pushed aside in a more Cartesian Newtonian uh, view, view of like the child as a blank slate, are really front and center in these human-centered liberatory approaches. It's so interesting that you bring up that sort of rigidity of thought that as educators we can have, because my observation is even within our Montessori community, so many of us were educated in sort of a factory model conventional way. So we're coming from a behaviorist overculture that informs how we're even thinking about approaching this constructivist, you know, more holistic approach. And so where's the, we do a lot of talking about rewiring. Where's the opportunity for the wire cutters to get in and be like, I actually don't believe that. That is just like coming up out of an old place. That isn't actually how we think about this. We want to approach this because that actually gets in the way of serving all children. If we have this very rigid idea um, of how this how this method has to happen, especially given that it's a method that was born by actually just watching children with observation at the central piece of what we do is to see what's needed and how will we respond. We're not saying we're not saying anything that I'm sure you know folks who are listening to this haven't heard. But there are ways in which you know there can there are Montessorians who become very rigid in their interpretation of what they have learned. And I've often thought, having studied Montessori's work, not only the things that are in educator preparation, but were she alive and were she like building the model in the U.S. in a cultural context where you had so many so much diversity, I have no doubt that the method would have evolved and there would have been new materials, new activities, new ways of doing things, right, that would have responded to the context that, that young people are living in. And so, but no, I, you know, our cultural stew is left hemispheric. And that's why I think about, I like to think about it as muscles because building new muscles is hard, right? It does require the wire cutting of the, you know, intuitive, instinctive ways that we, that we make decisions. And it's also something we can practice and you start small and then you kind of push yourself harder and harder to kind of do it, but you have to be intentional about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think a big piece of our community work is, um, as Amelia Sherwood says, loving the curriculum so much that we want to interrogate it, right? That how do we bring about um, that renewal that the curriculum needs, given the racial reckoning, given that we're in the public sector serving a diverse population? Um, so what are the things that we need to do and change, and how do we need to be different um, in order to affirm all the learners? And to do that, right, I think is, again, this is kind of the right-left the, the thing that drove Montessori was 
what does a young child need? What do we know about how they develop, how their brains develop, how learning happens? Those are the driving principles. The specifics of the content or the activities that we do, those are the left hemispheric pieces, right? That kind of put something into the world and, and make those abstract ideas usable. And so there's a lot more room to kind of create and play with those specific things if we're centering what do children need developmentally, neurobi- you know, neurobiologically, and to kind of be healthy human beings. Some of, you know, a lot of things don't change. And Montessori, the brilliance of it is that we have templates to look at because she has so many things she did design that reflect that. But I think being able to kind of think about it as like, what are the driving principles versus what was the outcome that she came to? And there's a lot of room to change the outcomes and the specific approaches if we're consistent with the values. What thoughts do you have for how Montessori schools can change to help all children thrive? So, you know, we're sort of a unique method within a larger cultural idea of what education is. What is our role? What is our responsibility in changing in order to help children thrive? That's sort of the subtitle of the book, right, is how our education system needs to change to help all young people thrive. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about how even Montessori schools, I didn't say even, but how Montessori schools can do that work as well. So this kind of actually gets back to something I probably could have said when you asked why I wrote the book. I say in the introduction that we are always stronger as sticks in a bundle. There's some fable, some cultural tale, I can't remember. And one of the challenges with human-centered liberatory, that bucket, is that you have all of these different models, right? So you have Montessori, you have Steiner, you have a lot of alternative education environments and high schools in the public sector. You have unschooling, you have, you know, homeschooling. So there are all these different places where human-centered education is happening, where the same values that drove Montessori and Steiner and Krishnamurti around what do young people need? What do we know about learning? What do we know about development? Right? Where And there are just different ways to get to it. Now, I have the greatest respect, and I, I say this in the, in the seventh chapter, where I say, what would it take to get from where we are, where a lot of these programs are not in the public system, um, they are in the private and independent sector because they can't survive in the public sector, and therefore are accessible to only some families, and often the families with the most privilege and the most means. So how do we see each other as part of this same bucket, even though we have different models, and how can we work with our allies who are trying to do human-centered work in different ways, in different places, in different contexts, as opposed to feeling like we're being pitted one against the other and sort of fighting? And if we can't use the same language, it's very hard for policymakers and for people who aren't pedagogues to understand what we're talking about. And so at some point we need to like, and I was trying in the book to offer an invitation to the field of like, are there, are, there, are there words that we can kind of talk about or things we can talk about that encompass all of us? I think in, this, in the seventh chapter, I do say though, human-centered work and even the visual diagram in the book kind of shows this. It is complex work because you are pulling things, you're pulling a lot of different things together, but these programs that survive have done those in very intentional ways. So 
multi-age classrooms where a teacher stays serves multiple purposes. It serves a purpose for the development of the child. It serves purposes for relationship. It serves a purpose for sort of normalizing new people coming in, right? There are all these different things that are served by that model element. And so I think I have not seen a model as strong as Montessori in terms of how well it's thought out, how much it reflects what we know about the science of learning and development, um, and has the accompanying adult preparation component. Because so much of it then is about how are you helping adults to do this complex work and to be ready to do this complex work in ways that don't overwhelm them. And because you go through Montessori training and there's the personal transformation piece of it, as well as understanding the materials, understanding the lessons, right? Understanding how to observe. It allows you as educators then to put your focus on the child rather than juggling lots of different, how do I do this lesson? How do I plan this? How do I assess. So um, I have not seen anything stronger, particularly in that kind of zero to eight age. And that's not because I don't think Montessori thought a lot about adolescence, you know, late childhood and adolescence, but rather she just hadn't built all of that out. And so I think to be able to learn from each other as well, like I often see Montessori middle schools and I'm like, you're actually trying to do what expeditionary learning did um, or does. And so what is there to learn from a model like that? When I look at high school programs for Montessori, they're actually trying to do what big picture learning programs really have lived into and focused on. So what is there to learn? So, right, how can we learn from each other as well? Because our collective success is what's going to tell the story for people. It's how we're going to get the data and the evidence to show that, yes, this is actually good for kids and it's good for all kids, um, not just white privileged kids. Especially for our public Montessori schools, there's just such an overwhelming influx of things that need to be managed on a day-to-day basis that I notice that it's even difficult for public Montessori schools to network with each other. Um, And you're suggesting networking even beyond our own community with other strong programs. And so I'm thinking, okay, we baby step, but I love how you have phase one and like like the spread rather than the scale, right? We're not going to just try to like take over the world. We're just doing a slow spread. And so I'm thinking of, you know, sort of what are the small moves that could happen for people really motivated in Montessori, where it could spread, what the the strong work that's happening could make a spread to even strengthen our Montessori communities in that then the next spread would be connecting with other best practices to figure out how to language. I love the idea of shared language. I think that's really critical as if, you know, we're we're talking in different terms. We don't even know we're talking about the same thing. (laughs) It's like, okay, let's come upon with agreed upon understanding of what the defining these terms so that we can move this forward because I do think there's a huge sort of political opportunity within the larger structure. So I've just asked you from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, what are your thoughts? I I mean, some of the small steps, it was interesting because we're doing a American Montessori Society book club. And so we've been talking about the the book's ideas and we were just talking about how um, it's helpful to have something that can help Montessorians translate what they're doing into language that other educators can um, understand and appreciate and see themselves inside of. So I'm doing a summer program right now, and one of the the residents is a principal at a program where there's both a Montessori program and a, a conventional education program. And she was just saying, wouldn't it be great to be able to have the two groups speak to each other so that 
educators in the conventional system can kind of see you can be doing things that are about learner agency or that are about slightly more constructivist things in your classroom, even if you don't have all the Montessori materials or all of the, or that you can think about like, what does it mean for you to prepare the environment for your students to come in, in the form of relationship and in the form of certain base routines and rituals that aren't about management, but rather about giving you freedom inside of this space to take ownership of the learning. So I think for public Montessorians, um, you know, to be able to kind of get these ideas and be able to talk about your work to your colleagues in ways that allow your colleagues to see um, themselves inside of it and be like, this is a small step. And there are some great websites for this. I mean, whatschoolcouldbe.org was trying to kind of put together playlists of small things like, hey, you could start with a genius hour or you could start with um, with a, a sort of self-directed student project just as like a through line throughout the year, but they own it and it's whatever they want. So I think um, that would be one, but I think translating your work to other people without making them wrong. I think that's that's one of the other things is so much of this is about our tone and how we come into the conversations. And I think multiple things can be true at the same time. Montessori can be amazing and a strong model that needs to exist and needs to spread in the public sector. And there are other models and other ways to kind of get some of the values of human-centered liberatory approaches to students and to also help adults and adult educators build those muscles. So, um, so that would be one sort of granular thing you can do in your space. I think community conversations are going to be a huge part of moving this forward. And so, you know, whether it's the future of smart or a different book, um, taking inspiration from a place like uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where after this big flood, the town was going, gosh, we can rebuild a lot of stuff and what should we do? And so they said, you know what, if we're going to, if we have an opportunity to rebuild something, um, let's kind of start. And so they did a, a profile of a graduate. What do young people need to know and be able to do? Who do we want them to be? And then they, and they brought a large group of people, business leaders, civic leaders, advocates, parents, students, and they then made them go to high school for a day. And then they brought them all back together and people were like, oh my God, like it's exactly the same as when I went. And yet we said we want kids to be able to do something different. And all of a sudden that opened up space for, okay, so what would we need to do? And I think at many, at the district level right now and at the school level, because the pandemic has disrupted so much, I think there are opportunities to kind of to, to pause and say, are we just going to do what we were doing before? Or do we do what I think a lot of people are coming to, which is we should spend the first four weeks or five weeks of school this fall building relationships and resetting the culture of our school and our learners and the relationships we have to ourselves and our learning, right? That would be a huge thing. So I think wherever you can sort of bring that conversation of what do we want for our children and how do we take advantage of the gaps that have been created um, and the opportunities. I was talking to somebody about how it would make total sense to do multi-age classes specifically in literacy and numeracy in a conventional program or like in your schools because kids are coming in, they always were, 
at different places, but people are more aware of it now. But like, why couldn't you do something where it doesn't matter what grade a kid is in, they can be sort of learning at the pace they need to. So that would be at a district level. And then I think um, in the book, you know, what you were talking about phase one, phase two, this is a 30 year play, right? To be able to shift our system. It took hundreds of years to build it. So it's not going to change in two years. And so I think states are going to be the unit of change for building new systems and structures, whether it's how do we count learning? How do we assess differently? And how do we do accountability differently in ways that hold schools accountable for the things that really matter? How do we do college acceptance um, so that parents don't feel like they have to make a choice between playing the game as it currently sits and having their child have a human-centered laboratory education where they don't have GPAs or AP tests, right? So how do we do funding differently if we have programs that are starting to blur the line between health and human services and early childhood and K-12? So, you know, I think it's about at the state level for those who may be listening, who are interested in politics and advocacy at that level, I think states should be working to create research and development space where they bring together all the human-centered models, so think sticks in a bundle, all the people that have been doing this work and therefore have answers to um, how do we assess, how do we count learning, how do we know what accountability looks like, how do we prepare adults to actually say, all right, let's build something different that becomes the model of a new system that then enables more of these programs to exist in the public sector, because that's the only way it's going to happen. Otherwise, it's going to continue to be piecemeal. And I know from having visited public Montessori schools and speaking to public Montessorians, it's exhausting because you're trying to play with a foot in both worlds. You're trying to do best by your kids when the system's asking you to do what isn't best for them, but you have to stay alive right, as a program to be able to help kids. So, um, yeah, I think I think that state level sort of work is something and to advocate with funders and with community leaders and board of education members, um, you know, about that. What are we doing in the long term and what are we doing now? Mm-hmm. I love the sticks in the bundle piece. And I'm thinking that um, there are some districts where there are multiple public Montessori programs and um, creating connection between those schools and for schools that are a unique school within the district to team up with schools that are in other districts within your state um, to create a stronger community of practice to understand within your state what are the distinct pieces like the teacher licensure pathway um, that exists to make sure that public schools are able to hire Montessori trained teachers and not just state certified teachers that it's a Montessori certification first and then we'll go for you know over time we'll get our state certification as opposed to a lot of districts where it's you have to be state certified we don't care if you're Montessori certified it's like well that's a little nutty right because <laughs> now we're we're putting a yeah creating an inequitable situation Yeah, this is a moment though, right? Because with teachers leaving, everyone is now starting to talk about emergency certification, alternative routes, whatever. But for Montessorians to stand up and say, okay, you're thinking about making the bar very, very low. And our bar is arguably better than even state certification, but leave that aside for three seconds. It's certainly higher than the emergency. So why are we not getting, why is this not a pathway to, um, to full certification? So, you know, opportunities are important. And I think this is a moment to be able to get 
Montessori certified teachers and to be able to say, we did human development, we did learning, we did pedagogy, we did DI, all that stuff, right? And we have professional development that's ongoing through our programs. But I, the idea you had of like networks of schools, like this is one of the things, the big charter management organizations, I think there is something to be learned from what they did. They understood that you know, human-centered programs are often small because it's hard to have a human-centered program with 1,500 kids. And that makes it really hard in the finances of a public system or even the private system. You want the economies of scale that could come from having networks of schools that are trying to do similar work actually be working together where you can share PD, where maybe it's that you share some of the specialists or interventionists who might need to come in or social workers or whatever. So if you can think about kind of building those networks, again, maybe it starts informally, um, but you know people are being smart or creative about how they use their budgets. And then, right, it's a, something to point to, to say, hey, don't close small schools because small schools actually let us do amazing things it's the budget that you're worrying about. Well, we figured out something with the budget. So those are also opportunities, I think, for human-centered laboratory programs. And again, I think particularly with middle and high school programs, I know there are fewer of those in the public sector, but being able to team up with alternative high schools in your district or you know, other kind of alternative human-centered models, because you're actually all going to be wanting to learn how to do the same thing, which is progressions of learning or deep projects or community-based you know, learning. So there's a lot to do together. Socratic seminars, yeah, all of those things. So, um, and that's where the sticks in a bundle comes, right? You can't work with people if you can't see them. Um, and sometimes we're not able to see each other. As, as actually doing the same kind of work, even though our language is different. This has been a wonderful conversation uh, with you in thinking about your book, The Future of Smart. And I really appreciate your time in sharing your, your thoughts and your books, particularly from a sort of a Montessori lens of uh, how does that inform the thinking and the work and um, a call to action around the revolution. How can we rethink in the largest way the way education is in this country and around the world in shifting and changing to serve all of the different children? So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Our show is a project of Public Montessori in Action, elevating voices in the community to forward the mission. Our host is Elizabeth Slade. Our producer is Isaac Price Slade. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with others. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.